This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Lessons of the Coronavirus Finding Wisdom Amid the Crisis All of us have been affected by the coronavirus pandemic. Some of the effects will be transitory, others will be lasting. Some may be permanent. As yet, it is impossible to know which effects will fall into what categories. As we move day by day through this unpredictable and unprecedented situation, it is not too early to examine the larger questions raised by the crisis and what we have already learned. It is in this spirit that the Return to Order moment presents three articles, two by John Horvath II and one by Julio Laredo. The first article speaks to the need to retain sanity during the crisis, why we need wisdom, not panic, in the coronavirus fight, by John Horvath II. In the face of the coronavirus crisis that is paralyzing the nation, America needs policies in place to lead the country back to health. Perhaps the first policy should be that the media should not be policymakers. With this fundamental measure in place, the rest would certainly be much easier. A case in point was the recent op-ed of the Wall Street Journal writer Peggy Noonan. Her editorial decried the present measures as inadequate and stressed the need to stretch the imagination of what could possibly happen. She says the advice, don't panic, is misdirected. There is a need to panic as a means of exploring all the possible threats that could be out there. America must be prepared for everything, even the unimaginable. Afterwards, she concedes, officials can moderate overzealous actions caused by the panic to return to more reasonable levels of caution. However, panic as policy is always dangerous. By definition, panic is a sudden, unreasoning terror or fear that prompts irrational actions such as flight. Panic unleashes a series of steps that are hard to contain once set in motion. It creates a competition among officials to each outdo the other in zeal for action, lest they be faulted for inaction. When panic rules, every possible threat must be considered, even if only remotely probable. Every contact must be suspected. Every action monitored. All must be locked down because of what might happen. Such a social order, thus organized, is not a society, but a universal prison. Life becomes impossible under such a regime. No state can long function in a situation in which it must be prepared for all possible threats that can be imagined. Panic policy relies on a jumble of numbers and statistics thrown into the public forum to prove anything and everything. Panic plays with numbers and makes wild projections about what could happen. It does not wait to collect and analyze data to then formulate conclusions. Instead, it runs with whatever numbers fit the panic, usually causing disastrous decisions. Any number, even relatively small numbers, can be inflated and sensationalized, distorting the reality. Spiraling cases may only involve dozens of new illnesses. Indeed, a single death becomes unbearable where fear rules. Epidemiologist Dr. John Ioannidis, professor of medicine at Stanford University, complains that the coronavirus data collected so far is, quote, utterly unreliable, unquote. As yet, important decisions are being made by government officials in the dark. Their rash decisions may bring devastating consequences to the nation. The most dangerous threat of panic is its destructive power. When set in motion, panic does not care what is in the way of its mad flight, 
all must be sacrificed, economy, society, even worship, in the name of the irrational fear. Moreover, panic is hard to stop. Combat veteran officers know the abysmal difference between a retreat with its frequent intelligent and disciplined rearguard actions and a rout. The first makes the best of a bad situation. It tries to save the army to fight another day with better odds. The latter brings the collapse of the fighting force and its slaughter. Thus, panic can take social isolation to the extreme of destroying the very society it claims to be saving through means that are not proven to be effective. Thus, panic can take social isolation to the extreme of destroying the very society it claims to be saving through means that are not proven to be effective. No one denies the need to take measures to limit the spread of the virus. However, these measures must be based on verifiable data, not wild assumptions. This danger is echoing all across the nation as business and community leaders express their concerns. Indeed, the business sector complains that the grinding of the economy to a halt will have disastrous long-term effects. It will bring enormous suffering to tens of millions of Americans. The health risks that might be avoided by lockdowns can give rise to dangers in other areas of stress and psychological health. Many fear that the strain on government resources will prove too great and cause the nation's socioeconomic collapse. When the panic of not reacting enough takes hold, nothing is off the table. The situation is aggravated by the political posturing of politicians who use the crisis to their own ends. When panic informs policy, it becomes impossible to make the right decisions. It is not the cause to argue here about what specific measures should or should not be implemented. The Chinese virus crisis is a severe threat that must be confronted, and no one denies that it will involve hardship. However, what is missing is wisdom. Many, especially in the media, are not presenting a balanced picture or the whole picture. Wisdom is the contrary of panic. Wisdom is calm, reflective, impartial, and objective. It deals with reality as it is, not as one would imagine it to be. German philosopher Joseph Piper defined wisdom as knowing the highest cause of things. He writes, To know the highest cause, then, does not mean to know the cause of some particular thing, but to know the cause of everything and all things. It means to know the whither and the whence, the origin and the end, the plan and the structure, the framework and the meaning of reality, unquote. This wisdom must be found everywhere and at all levels. America needs calm voices that reflect an understanding of the crisis's entire framework. It begs for government authorities that can make decisions with wisdom, not toppling the whole system. America needs wise leadership to raise its voice above the din of the panicky crowds and media. Its words will be measured and objective, providing sound counsel in these times of trial. Above all, America needs prayerful hearts to implore help from the eternal wisdom, the Word incarnate. Such souls know well that natural solutions will not be enough in this crisis. 
America must have recourse to God's help if it is to return to order. But God is found in wisdom's gentle breeze, not in panic's emotional hurricanes. The Lord is not found in commotion. See Third Kings chapter nineteen, verses eleven to twelve. End of Why We Need Wisdom, Not Panic in the Coronavirus Fight by John Horvath Second. Julio Laredo brings us the perspective of someone who writes from quarantine in Milan, Italy. He records his insights in his article, What America Can Learn from the Coronavirus in Italy. When future historians study the huge crisis triggered by the coronavirus, they will ask many questions, some of which may already have answers. Amid the crisis today, with Italy still in quarantine, we have to make do with the questions, which are not few or trivial. The coronavirus brings to light many contradictions and shortcomings of our modern world, which have long laid in the background, buried by the prevailing optimism. Taking advantage of the extra time available to us, perhaps we should raise those questions now, trying to learn some lessons from them. The first question involves the fragility of the modern world. It is truly astonishing. How a being so small, indeed microscopic, could bring to its knees a world that boasted of being solid, powerful, and enduring. The economy has ground to a halt as stock exchanges are plummeting, shops are closed, flights cancelled, and roads deserted. We see events postponed, sports banned, and borders closed. We used to think that things like this could only happen as the result of a world war or an extraordinary natural disaster. However, we now see that this is not the case. The culprit is a tiny being, a few microns in size. It disrupted our lives and shattered the myth of the world's stability. This is a first great lesson if we want to learn to listen to the signs of the times. Our Lady spoke at Fatima about a series of scourges that would fall upon sinful humanity, followed by a general conversion and consequent restoration of Christian civilization. Many did not heed her words, not because of a doctrinal objection, but rather because of the conviction, more pragmatic than intellectual, that this world would last forever. They believed that they could continue to enjoy it undisturbed. However. The coronavirus crisis teaches us that things can change, and even quickly. We cannot take anything for granted. This state of affairs is not eternal. Everything can vanish. Only God remains. The second question involves the Chinese government's maneuvers in the crisis. In the coming years, historians will find it hard to explain how China manipulated the coronavirus narrative to the point that it transformed itself from criminal to heroine in a few weeks. The epidemic began in China, where it spread due to the extreme neglect and arrogance of the communist government in Beijing. The first sign of the epidemic was an outbreak of bronchitis in Wuhan on November seventeenth, twenty nineteen. Those infected had one thing in common. They frequented the city's open livestock market. As early as December fifteenth, doctors Ai Fen and Li Wenliang raised the alarm of an ongoing epidemic. 
On December 30th, Dr. Wenliang was arrested for quote-unquote spreading false news. On January 7th, the Wall Street Journal published a report about the outbreak. The Beijing government reacted by expelling its journalists. The authorities also forbade any further reports under very severe penalties. With the epidemic now out of control, President Xi Jinping made a public statement only on January 30th. Three days later, he decreed the state of emergency. If China had reacted promptly in late November by sealing off the Wuhan market, there probably would be no epidemic today. The real culprit is China's government. Two intertwined questions arise. Why did China act this way? And why does no one accuse China of wrongdoing? The answer to the first question is explained by the totalitarian mentality proper to communism. Such regimes always react by keeping secret anything that might affect their image. This happened in 1986 with the Chernobyl disaster and with the Kursk submarine disaster in 2000. However, this mentality does not explain everything. Another factor is the reluctance to hamper the Chinese economy on which half the world now depends. The world powers preferred to keep the Chinese locomotive running, even at the risk of triggering a pandemic. A certain capitalist mentality joins with the faults of a communist mentality. This complicity helps answer the second question. The reason why the Chinese cannot be touched or accused is that they hold the knife by the handle. One of the great enigmas of our age, a real mystery of iniquity, is how the West, which prides itself on democratic and liberal character, has so servilely submitted to the dictatorial government dominated by a communist party. To make money, the West consciously and voluntarily put its head in the guillotine. Could it be any wonder that the executioner is pulling the lever? As masters in shady operations, the Chinese have also taken advantage of the crisis by strengthening their dominance in markets. When the crisis pummeled the shares of many Western companies operating in China, the Central Bank of Beijing responded by buying hundreds of billions in equity securities. Thus, it obtained majority partnerships with many of these Western companies. All this happened under the indifferent and often complicit eyes of the gurus of Western finance. There is yet more. In a twist worthy of the worst comedy, China now presents itself as the world's savior. Everyone now praises the Chinese model for dealing with the coronavirus. Beijing even allows itself the luxury of sending planes with quote-unquote virus experts and medical supplies to Western countries. It sends help to resolve the epidemic that it started. Thus, the nation went from criminal to heroin in a few weeks. A truly amazing transformation. The coronavirus may be a historical opportunity for us to review our whole relationship with Beijing. We still have time. Let's react before it is too late. A third and most excruciating question about the coronavirus crisis involves the attitude of the Catholic Church, particularly in Italy. The Italian Bishops' Conference, CEI, bowed to the demands of the Conte government without considering the spiritual needs of the faithful. In an article in the Corriere della Sera, a well-known analyst, Andrea Riccardi, writes, 
Tense negotiations started between the CEI and Palazzo Chizzi. The government was adamant. It would accept no measures other than those proposed by its sanitary technicians. After a quick arm-wrestling bout, the CEI caved in. Riccardi implies that the CEI surrendered reluctantly. However, the rapidity and alacrity with which our bishops applied the sanitary measures issued by the government make us think differently, as though they sometimes anticipated them and then applied them in an exaggerated and even unilateral way. Over its 2,000-year history, the Church in Italy has faced many terrible epidemics, as seen in the plague of Rome in the year 590, or those of Milan in 1578 and 1630. The Bride of Christ has always reacted with a supernatural spirit, remaining close to the faithful, encouraging them in prayer and penance, and multiplying their access to the sacraments. Great saints like St. Charles Borromeo returned to Milan from Lodi while the civil authorities fled. St. Aloysius Gonzaga chose to remain with the sick in the Roman college, paying the heroic gesture with his life. The predominant note of the church during times of plagues was to reinvigorate her care of souls. For the first time in history, the Italian hierarchy, with few notable exceptions, has abandoned the faithful by depriving them of spiritual support. The bishops first imposed communion in the hand and took away all holy water. Then they suspended all masses and religious ceremonies, including funerals. All churches were immediately closed. Any violation of the rules could lead to the imprisonment of the quote-unquote rebel priest. Many commented that it was worse than in Soviet times. If the health norm is to keep a yard's distance between people to keep them from touching each other, then why not celebrate Mass with the faithful scattered throughout the church? Could the number of Masses not be multiplied to allow the faithful to attend in this manner? Could not Masses be celebrated in the public square with the faithful quietly arranged outdoors, keeping the necessary safety distances? None of this seems to have been considered. Instead, the bishops chose to deprive the faithful of the sacraments just when they needed them the most. Riccardi touches on this point in the article cited above, quote, It's okay to avoid crowded masses. However, it is not clear why worship and prayers are forbidden if practiced in safety. Perhaps not all decision-makers grasp the special meaning of the Mass for Believers, of which the ancient martyrs said, We cannot be without the Sunday, unquote. This time the Church caved in entirely, as Fabio Aderno points out in an article on Vatican expert Marco Tassati's blog, quote, The limitations on Christian worship imposed by the changing events of history in certain circumstances have always been suffered by the Church in the form of persecution and martyrdom, and never deliberately chosen with a relativistic or compliant spirit, unquote. Put simply, what the enemies of the church used to do, the hierarchy now does. Certainly, Caesar cannot be required to understand the reasons of God. However, we can and must require the bishops to assert the superior reasons of God instead of bowing ignobly before Caesar. After one week of applying these norms, the situation was slightly altered. Following an overt recommendation by Pope Francis who had previously said something very different, some Italian dioceses, including Rome, have issued new norms that leave the opening of churches to the parish priest's discretion. This norm applies only to parochial churches, 
there is no mention of masses or sacraments. It seems that the hierarchy has listened, at least in part, to the clamor of the people. However, the clergy should take over the leadership role, not the faithful. Ricardo Cascacoli is correct when he writes, The ecclesiastical hierarchy is in a state of mental confusion. Unquote. Let us raise one last point. Leaving aside the judgment as to whether this pandemic can be interpreted as a divine punishment, the obvious fact remains that it would be an excellent opportunity for preaching, especially since it is Lent when we should focus on the terrible but redemptive sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. The epidemic has clearly shaken many consciences, which are usually overwhelmed by the desire to enjoy life. People are much more open to heavenly considerations, which offers opportunities for the purifying intervention of divine grace. On this occasion, however, the silence of the hierarchy is tragic. Without judging their intentions, we see a lack of supernatural spirit that is truly disturbing. With few exceptions, they remain silent when they should speak all the more. Here are a few questions, mostly unanswered, raised by the situation created by the spread of this strange creature, no larger than fifty thousandths of a millimeter, that is turning our lives upside down. End of What Americans Can Learn from the Coronavirus in Italy by Julio Laredo Our third article speaks to the necessity for all of us to actively participate in the crisis that faces us. So now the Return to Order moment brings you Involve All Americans in the Fight Against the Coronavirus by John Horvath II. When the coronavirus first erupted, many private companies naturally stepped up to the plate. They saw the needs of communities and addressed them, many times free of charge. U-Haul, for example, saw the plight of stranded college students and offered them free storage places when their schools shut down. Other companies voluntarily provided sick leave and flexible schedules. Retailers offered parking lots for testing. Necessity is the mother of invention. Even when orders came down that confessions were banned, resourceful priests found amazing workarounds, like drive-through confessions to administer the sacrament safely. Organic solutions, rising from adverse circumstances, provided creative and practical ways to deal with difficult problems. Such natural resources must be employed to survive the present crisis. Some recent measures to contain the coronavirus have done precisely the opposite of what should have been done. Throughout the country, top-down government decisions have shut down what they deemed non-essential businesses. This move threatens to have long-term effects on the American economy that will be extremely severe. No society can protect public health for a long time at the cost of its economic health. Extreme measures, many not backed by data, could bring America down. These decisions are also depriving Americans of the resources that those companies could contribute to the fight. It takes away the organic solutions and workarounds that could help solve so many problems. It puts everything in the stone hands of government to bail out everyone with funds that it does not have. According to lockdown orders, governors have closed all non-essential businesses operating in their states. All citizens not engaged in what these governors have deemed essential industries are ordered to shelter in place or stay at home, waiting out the virus for weeks or perhaps months. Thus, millions of workers have been turned into non-combatants in the war against the virus. 
The reason given for the lockdown is to minimize human contact to prevent the spread of the virus. The government has established norms of social distancing and limited social gatherings. No one questions the need to take measures to prevent contagion. However, millions of Americans and essential businesses will already be circulating to keep society going. They will be following strict protocols to ensure the safety of others. Does it not make any sense to assume that management and workers in non-essential businesses would not follow similarly strict protocols? Is the government more attentive to these managers and workers' health than they are themselves? The contrary is far more plausible. To prevent the meltdown of the American economy, those who can still safely participate in production should continue. In so doing, these Americans will find organic ways of helping themselves and their fellow citizens bear the trials of a world turned upside down. Thus, the message to socialist-inspired authoritarian government officials should be this one. Do not break America. Do not destroy our economy. Do not bankrupt hundreds of thousands of medium and small businesses. Do not wage war on millions in the nation's workforce. America rejects socialism. Instead, channel the energies of the American economy. Work together with employers against the coronavirus. Give these employers the freedom to implement protocols that will ensure the maximum protection for their workers. Let them figure out how to employ and test them in their workplaces. They will come up with novel ways to keep the economy going. No one is more interested in workers' health and safety than their employers. In this way, millions more can be combatants in the war against the virus. Many industries not directly involved in essential businesses, like U-Haul, will find inventive ways to help fellow citizens. More employers can offer financial aid or make their premises available if needed. Instead of sitting on the sidelines... Local charities and churches can also be brought back into the battle, using their vast resources and social capital. Indeed, some business writers have proposed this strategy. Excluded business leaders are begging that their firms, too, be allowed to address this national emergency. It has been said that every harmful contact avoided will help stem the spread of the illness. With proper safety measures being implemented in business, every job saved will help prevent the collapse of the American economy. Above all, bottom-up solutions will flourish tailored to the needs of the localities. They should help apply the principle of subsidiarity that holds that problems should be solved at the lowest possible level. That means the employer, not the state governor, county executive, or city mayor. With hands-on people on the ground, people with decades of experience solving every problem that life can throw at them, it will be far easier to bring communities back to a sense of normality and to health. The use of intermediary organizations is the normal way of dealing with a crisis. It is best suited to human nature, and it's the fastest road to solutions. Unfortunately, the answer now proposed is the Chinese solution. Everywhere it is hailed as the successful way to deal with the crisis, even though China is where the virus originated, and dictator Xi's communist government aggravated and lied about the problem's scope, thereby creating the global pandemic. China employed a brutal, top-down, totalitarian plan to suppress what can properly be called the Chinese virus. 
It thrives on blanket directives that shut down everything, enforcing them with violence. Chinese officials trampled upon liberties and privacy in the name of public health. The communist government used a massive totalitarian infrastructure and government funding to impose its program. Their message is that only authoritarian governments and vast amounts of cash are capable of controlling these problems. It is one more bald-faced lie. China can never be a model for the West, since it disrespects every human right and suppresses God and religion. Their cure is worse than the illness. China should be neither the West's friend nor teacher. If allowed to act, organic solutions can be far more effective and at a fraction of the cost. Employers are best positioned to help government leaders act with wisdom, determination, and charity. These means must be employed now. It is high time for governments to stop their socialist micromanaging. Let all of America's free and enterprising employers address this problem. With a nation's prayers and God's merciful help and blessing, solutions will quickly be found. End of. Lessons of the Coronavirus: Finding Wisdom Among the Crisis. Thank you so much for listening. To read these or find related articles, please visit our websites at www.tfp.org and www.returntoorder.org. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. In that way, you can help return to order be more effective. All rights are reserved. Copyright, 2020, by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, T.F.P.